You're listening to the Matthew Sermon Series at Sojourn Jtown. In this series, we're following Jesus as he calls us to take on his yoke so that we might experience true flourishing. I'm really happy to be back. And like Lyle said, we're, we're back in Matthew, but we're not going to... Um, do you remember exactly where we left off in Matthew? You don't have to answer that. Well... We're not going to just sort of take up where we left off. So what Pastor Lau asked me to do today is kind of just get us back in the flow of Matthew, uh, just so we kind of get, our, get it rolling again after a long break during the summer. So, like I said, rather than just try to figure out where we were and then sort of connect all the dots, I'm just going to kind of do a, a little bit of a flyover, hopefully not too scattered, but a little bit of a flyover that really kind of focuses on mostly the Sermon on the Mount, but kind of just in general ways to set the scene again. And then next week, Pastor Lau will launch us back into Matthew for the rest of the series. When I was a kid, my dad liked to say, a well, my dad said a lot of stuff to me over and over again, but there were sort of two f- words or phrases he used for me a lot. One of those words was this, he used the word jag, and jag just meant like He's on some new jag. I don't know if you've ever heard it used that way, but it would be just my dad sort of commenting on how I've all of a sudden gotten interested in something I'm probably not going to stick with, but I've gotten like 100% on board. Like, I had a brief moment in time where I got really into hang gliding. I'm I'm not kidding. I mean, I only hang glided one day in North Carolina off of sand dunes, but I got super into it. I never did it again. Another point in time, I got really into motocross racing. I never raced, but I was super into it. And it, that was sort of my pattern. Dad would just, and he didn't, well, he wasn't being dismissive, but he just over time would say, you know, he's on some new jag now, but it'll be something else next week. The other thing my dad would say to me a lot would, he would, I would often, I don't know how many times I heard my dad say, you know, uh, I think you're kind of out of whack. W-H-A-C-K, whack. I don't know if you've ever heard that word either, but that was my dad's way of saying, you've kind of lost your focus, or you really just don't know what you're talking about. That was usually what it was, right? So whenever I was out of whack, and I promise you, I'm not going to say out of whack over and over and over again in this sermon. Usually that meant that I had just sort of held forth about the state of the world, the state of everybody else, based on not a lot of knowledge and almost no experience. And my dad would just sort of say, I think you're kind of out of whack on that one. But the fact is, out of whack really just meant for my dad, out of focus. Like I'd lost focus or didn't have any focus. And telling me I was out of whack was my dad's sort of first step into trying to get me back into focus. And so that's what I want to do today. I want to to refocus on Matthew and refocus specifically on some big major themes in Matthew that are not just easy for us to forget about Matthew, but they're easy for us to forget about just living in general. And a lot of the reasons we get out of focus has to do with our expectations. 
I don't know, have you ever found at any point in your life that maybe not all your expectations were met? Maybe the people in your life didn't really live up to your expectations. Maybe the vacation you are going to take and the way you thought it was going to work and what it was going to look like didn't live up to your expectations. Maybe, maybe your job didn't live up to your expectations. Any number of things. We often live our life according to expectations. Sometimes not asking, do I even have the right expectations? Or what am I? So we just, we kind of get deflated when our expectations aren't met. But sometimes we need to take a step back and think, why do I even have these particular expectations? And you see a lot of that going on in Matthew. Jesus kind of confronts expectations at every level over and over and over again on lots and lots of issues, especially like the main issue, and that is, who is he? And how should people react to him? The other thing that is prominent in the Gospel of Matthew is the idea of identity, and that's, that's linked to expectations, like who we think we are, and on what basis do we think we exist and the impact we're making. And often, what you'll find is, what I find, is my identity gets hardwired to what I do, whether good or bad. Like, that's what makes me what I am. I either do these things or I don't do these things, and usually in comparison to other people, right? So I do things better than this group of people, look at me, right? Or I do things worse than that group of other people, but it's probably because they're doing it wrong. But I look at myself, in other words, I look at myself and my performance on any number of issues, any number of things in life, and it's upon that basis that I kind of get my identity. And again, it doesn't mean always positive. It could be a good thing or a bad thing, right? My identity could be sort of filled with pride. At the other end of the spectrum, my identity could be filled with shame and remorse and guilt, but all of it based on how I kind of judge my own performance. In other words, I'm kind of the starting point and the ending point of my own identity. And in the, gospel of, in the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus takes on sort of both of those things. And that is expectations and identity. And those are the two hardest things to confront with any human being. It's the two hardest things to confront with me. And they're, they're interconnected. You can't, you can't separate them. Now, in no way is my sermon today on how you need to lower your expectations, right? Like the problem is you just have, your expectations are too high. And if you just lower them, then, you know, life will be better because you think, well, I wasn't expecting much. Not much happened. I must be good. Because usually, honestly, our expectations are too low. They're either too low or they're just misplaced. And we're going to really focus in on that this morning with Matthew. Now, before I go any further, I just want to say a quick word about how we even think about the Gospel of Matthew. When we read the Old Testament, we know when that happened, right? A long time ago. If we read everything after the Gospels, we think about that being, you know, those are written, what, to the church, right? Romans, Philippians, 1 John, I'm not going to name all of them. They're written to the church, but we often read the Gospels as though they really sort of mostly apply 
to this one moment, point in time in history. And then the letters come later to kind of tell us what that looks like for the church. And while it is true that the Gospels, like Matthew, do communicate to us a point in time in history, at the incarnation of Jesus and his teaching and his ministry and his life and what happened, but one of the things we sometimes don't take into account is that was written down later. Matthew wrote those things down later in a much different sort of world than the world in which those things happened. In other words, Matthew is writing to a similar situation that is, that, well, he's writing to a similar situation that Paul's writing to. Luke, John, Mark, all of them. They're writing not just sort of in the moment. These aren't just like press releases, right? Here's what Jesus did like five minutes ago, and then they're getting it out on the, on the wire. I, don't, I guess, I don't know, on the cart or something. And while it's true that, yes, they record real history about what Jesus did, said, and all that's contained in his ministry, they were still, though, writing those things down in a new situation to new people, right? So Matthew is consciously writing to people who live after the resurrection, to people who live after the giving of the Spirit, Matthew is consciously writing in a church context to Christians. And I think his gospel, we're meant to read it that way. Not just as like a history lesson of what Jesus did, and then Paul comes along later and says, now here's what it means. So when we read about Jesus talking about, say, the heart or obedience or those kind of things, we have to remember Matthew is writing to people who live in a time, same time we live and. If you think about it, it's sort of a big picture. Same time we live, where these things are written to people, and the expectation is they're being written to people who are part of the people of God. Now, of course, they have evangelistic purposes, too. But generally speaking, the Gospels, all four of them, are written in a context of believers who already have the Spirit, who already know about the resurrection, who already are communities of believers meeting together. And I think that's, that's kind of helpful if we, think about, if we think about Matthew. So we're going to look at four things, four things today. We're going to refocus on four things from the Gospel of Matthew. And there they are. It's a refocus on God's kingdom, but specifically the sort of kingdom that Jesus brings, which turns out to be, from that point all the way up to this point, just about the opposite of what anybody else would have said is a good kingdom. Secondly, we're going to refocus on faithfulness. In other words, righteousness according to Jesus. What is it? And the third thing is we're going to refocus on Matthew's big focus on the heart. Faithfulness that flows from a, a new heart. right? And is not based on just sort of your performance on things. And then finally, a refocus on faith and dependence, which sometimes we don't think about when we read Jesus talking about, you've heard it said don't murder, but I tell you not to hate. And then we think, uh-oh. But we'll get to that in a minute. So those are the four things we're going to look at. So specifically, let's begin with refocusing on God's kingdom as Jesus 
brings it. So when you hear the word kingdom, what do you think of? Almost immediately. You don't have to give me a fancy, you know, in fact, you don't even answer out loud. And I'm not looking for like some kind of like fancy theological biblical answer. I mean, what do you think of when you hear the word kingdom? There's got to be somebody in here right now thinking of like a castle. Right? There's got to be. Or a, like a moat. <laughs> or, you know, I always think of moats and castles when I, think, when I hear the word kingdom. Or maybe you think, of, you think of land, right? A place, like an established place, probably a really powerful place. Maybe an army, maybe a king, queen, whatever you got. But you tend to, we tend to think, when we hear the word kingdom, we tend to think of something huge, right? Overpowering, like that you can take one look at and know that is a powerful thing. The people that Jesus came to were waiting for a kingdom, right? They had spent years, centuries, waiting and waiting and waiting. And those were really hard centuries, really hard. And one of the big things they were looking forward to was God keeping his promise about how he's going to come in, he's going to take care of their enemies, and put them back on top. God had promised these things, and they're waiting, and they're suffering. I mean, horribly suffering. And they're waiting for a time for God to come back and establish his kingdom in that land, with Jerusalem at the center, and a king like David on the throne, like visibly right there on the throne, and we're going we're to go back to the time of David, but even better But now in the midst of all that, though, in the midst of all that waiting, things are just getting worse and worse and worse. They kind of get overrun by outsiders over and over and over again. And then this latest batch of outsiders called the Romans, they're worse than anybody yet. I mean, they've got got an army garrison just a stone's throw away from the temple. Right? So if you're going up to offer your sacrifices, there it is. There's Roman flags everywhere. There's Roman soldiers everywhere. If you're walking down the street and a Roman soldier stops you and says, hey, carry my stuff, you've got to carry it. You don't really have any options. So they're waiting. And then, almost all of a sudden, a guy shows up and starts talking about a kingdom. And they've been waiting. And he brings the version of the kingdom that is sort of like but mostly completely unlike anything they were expecting. Because what they were expecting was something they could immediately see. Makes sense, right? Me too. They were looking for something they could immediately see, immediately get a hold of, immediately take part of, and then immediately see their enemies taken care of. And now they are back on top. That's the kind of kingdom they were looking for. You can't blame them. And then Jesus comes around, and he starts preaching the kingdom. So in Matthew 4.23, it says, Jesus was going all over Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom, and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So he's talking about the kingdom. Their ears are wide open to hear this. And he's doing great things. I mean, amazing things. He's healing the sick. Blind people are seeing. He's casting out demons all this kind of stuff, 
but who is he? And when he starts talking, all those hopes about, hey, we're back on top, they sort of start to get a kind of shaky. Because while he's doing great things, he is saying, well, honestly, some weird stuff that's hard to accept, especially if you're thinking about greatness being something you can see, power, overwhelming power. If you're thinking about those things, things that you can look at and look, say, look how great this is. And then Jesus comes and starts to describe a kingdom that honestly is the opposite of what virtually anybody would write a story about. Now, think about how the kingdom first comes. The kingdom first comes, we read about this in Matthew one twenty three. Now, all this took place to fulfill what was spoken by the Lord through the prophet. See, the virgin will become pregnant, give birth to a son, and you will call his name Emmanuel, which is translated God with us. So how does this one, this one who's God with us, come? He comes in the form, not just in the form, he comes as a baby in a cattle shed, born to parents who are not standouts, unknown, no money, no power, no prospects. Joseph and Mary, they're just a common Israelite couple. Nothing special about them. You would have not paid any attention to them. So this king comes. He's surrounded by people like shepherds and animals. Some other people show up, right? But it's unknown. There's no fanfare. It's not like in a palace, right? There's no big proclamation that this new son of David has been born. He's He's a baby doing all kinds of baby stuff. You name what a baby does, he did it. And he's laying in a cattle shed. So that's how the story of the kingdom begins. And then, like I said, when he starts talking later as he grows up and starts preaching the kingdom, that's when things get really, well, they really kind of go out of whack if you're an Israelite. Think about the kind of things he said about the kingdom. Like in Matthew 5, for instance. In Jesus' kingdom, who are the blessed people? The poor in spirit. Who are the blessed people? The merciful. Who's blessed in Jesus' kingdom? The people who are insulted. The people who are persecuted. People like the meek. What kind of kingdom is that? Right? I mean, we sort of take it for granted, right? Because we're this side of it, and we're like, well, of course that's what a kingdom is. That is, of course, not what a kingdom is. A kingdom, the way we would think of it, is not the meek and the poor. Not, filled with a, not a kingdom filled with where the servants are the greatest people. But this is the sort of kingdom Jesus brings. Now, We know the story, right? It turns out to be a greater, more powerful kingdom than anybody could ever imagine. But the package it comes in does not live up to their expectations, just like it often, almost on a daily basis, doesn't live up to our own expectations. Because what kind of excites us, what kind of gets us charged up, what kind of gets us raring to go are things we can point at and say, look how awesome that is. Look how huge that is. Look how powerful that is. And when we do that, 
what we need to do is we need to get refocused back on this sort of kingdom that Jesus brings that is really like the upside-down version of almost everything we would think is a great kingdom. A kingdom where he says things like, you know what you have to do? You know your enemies? You know what you should do? Kick them while they're down. No. Love them. (laughs) What? Now again, we can hear that and be so filled with sort of like the way that, so filled with sort of the history of the Bible and what we know to be true, but think about it on a daily practical basis. Love your enemies. Not theoretically love your enemies or the enemies you've never met and like they're abstracted people out there, but think about that for a minute. Loving your enemies and those who are specifically against you. Right? It's not the sort of kingdom that we would typically put together, but that's exactly the kind of kingdom Jesus is bringing. Right? Where it transforms and changes and redirects and refocuses all of our expectations on what we think is great, what we think is impressive. A simple way to put it is Jesus comes and he starts talking about these kingdom things And it is a kingdom that is taking place not in gigantic, not only simply in gigantic world events, but in the everyday life of everyday people doing everyday things. Not just sort of great moments along the way. Jesus is calling calling us into a kingdom that encompasses our everyday life while we're doing the simplest, most sort of seemingly meaningless and kind of unnewsworthy things available. And he comes in and transforms those into something new, and that is the kind of kingdom that God was promising all along. And Jesus says, that is precisely the kind of kingdom that starts like this. Insignificant, unnoticeable beginnings, but with unimaginable endings. But it has to be grasped, it has to be entered into, it has to be held onto and lived in the midst of this insignificant beginnings. Unnewsworthy events. We have to grab a hold of that as the authentic kingdom of God. And when we do, what we find is The endings, how it ends, how it comes into its fulfillment is beyond anything we could ever imagine. But you have to understand that we're taking part in it, not just one day when it's revealed in its fullness, we're taking part in it now in our everyday lives. In the insignificant, in the unnewsworthy, in the unnoteworthy, we're taking part in it. And that's the sort of kingdom that he's calling us to, and he's like, in the midst of this kingdom, right? He, he gives us this way of living, merciful, loving, loving your enemies, praying for those who persecute you, right? That we can, we can put into practice virtually every day when we sort of turn on the news, look what's going on, deal with people at work, deal with people at home, constantly. We could be putting these things into actual practice and not just thinking about, well, you know, one day if Jesus sort of throws me into a situation where people are actually persecuting me. Because the, the overwhelming thing about the kingdom of God is it transforms the everyday life in the kingdom of God. 
so that we can understand there, there is no insignificant thing, right? On one level, a baby in a cattle shed, that's, is it super significant? But in the kingdom of God, that has turned into something more significant than we could ever even imagine. And so that's where we began, sort of entering into this kingdom. And the way we enter into this kingdom and maintain sort of our perspective in this kingdom is to get a hold of and refocus on the king and the teaching he brings about what it means to live in the kingdom. And that is essentially what the whole Sermon on the Mount is. The whole Sermon on the Mount is essentially this. It is a sermon preached so that the people in God's kingdom understand who they are, what their life is based on, and what it's like to live in that kingdom. It's a sermon for us. It's a sermon for the church. And so the second thing we're going to look at is a refocus on faithfulness. And we'll, we'll do this sort of from one of the more well-known texts in the Sermon on the Mount. It's also one of the most difficult and it's probably the one that people disagree about the most. But I'm going to skip all those issues and just get to right to the heart of it. Jesus says, don't assume, this is in Matthew 5, that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I did not come to destroy, but to fulfill. So, we'll stop right there. When Jesus says law and the prophets, he's not just simply saying the Old Testament. It is that, but it's something specific. It's the law and then the law, as it was fulfilled and interpreted by and applied by the prophets, all pointing forward to an event. So he's not just saying, I mean, he is saying the Old Testament, but it's not just simply the Old Testament. It's the Old Testament as it was pointing to him. All of it pointing to him, being fulfilled in him. And he comes and says, you know, all that stuff. Moses, and then what the prophets taught based on Moses and what they predicted, it's come. And I'm here. And he says, I assure you, until heaven and earth pass away, not the smallest letter or the stroke of a letter will pass from the law until all things are accomplished. Remember, he's already said he's the fulfillment of these things. Therefore, whoever breaks one of the least of these commands and teaches people to do so will be called least in the kingdom. But... Whoever practices and teaches these commands will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So one of the things we have to do is remember, Jesus is fulfilling all these things. He's bringing all these things to their fulfillment. So when you think about what commands, it's all the commands transformed through and by the incarnation and teaching of Jesus. And it's the Sermon on the Mount that leads us down that path of understanding what these sort of commands are and what's expected of us in life, in the kingdom. And Jesus, 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 Jesus immediately gives them an illustration that they would understand immediately, and that is your righteousness, that is, your righteousness, that is, what it looks like to live in a life that's acceptable, live a life that's acceptable to God in a relationship with God, not just the stuff you do, but in specifically in relationship to God. He says, your righteousness has to be better than the scribes and the Pharisees. Now, 
Jesus isn't saying, you know, the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like a six. You got to be eight or above to get in. That's not what he's saying at all. What he's calling them to is a totally different sort of way of thinking about what righteousness before God really is. In other words, what's the basis for a relationship with God in terms of what we do or obedience? And he's turning it on its head. Because the scribes and the Pharisees, they're like the, they're, they're the religious elite, right? And, but somewhere along the line, in the years that have sort of preceded all this, they kind of went, they went, well, they got out of whack. And one of the ways they got out of whack was they started to look at the commands as something to point to and say, you see, that's what makes me who I am. It's because I keep these commands. And I can show you. You can see it. It's because I do these things. This is what makes me who I am. That's my identity. My identity is the outside things, the sort of external things that I do. And I can point you to them. I can sort of hold them up to your face and say, look what a great guy I am. I keep the commands. Now, the best way to sort of illustrate this for you is to just give you a story from the Gospel of Luke that will explain the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees better than I ever could. And it's found, it's found over in Luke chapter 18. It's probably a story you're really familiar with. Jesus tells this parable. He told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, right? They trusted in themselves that they were righteous in themselves. And looked down on everybody else. And that is a surefire method, surefire method, surefire sign. Sorry, I got it all wrong. That we are falling into this idea that my identity is based on what I do. The minute we start looking at what we do and thinking, not like them. I mean, you know, look, this is what I do. I own a TV. I don't own a TV. I go to movies. I don't go to movies. I don't go to movies. You know those people, they go to movies. I smash my TV with a bulldozer. That guy has five TVs. Right? I drink certain things, I don't drink certain things. I eat certain things, I don't eat certain things. I wear this, I don't wear that. Unlike those people. In other words, it's identity based on saying, look at me, I do all the things that God says to do. And then he goes on to say, two men went up to the temple to pray, one a Pharisee, the other a tax, tax collector. The Pharisee took his stand and was praying like this, God, I thank you, I'm not like other people who are greedy, unrighteous, adulterers, or even like this guy. I fast twice a week. I give a tenth of everything I got. But the tax collector standing far off would not even raise his eyes to heaven but kept striking his chest saying, God, have mercy on me. Turn your wrath from me, a sinner. And then Jesus says that one of those, not the other, went home justified. That is the, probably the best picture of the righteousness of the scribes and the Pharisees in the entire Bible. It's all based on keeping the law, keeping the commandments, apart from 
actual faithfulness to the lawgiver. It's about being upright, doing the right things, which is good. It's good to do the right things. But doing those things and then thinking, look at that. You can not, look at that and now look at me. That's my identity. And so somewhere along the line, the cord got broken between obedience as what? As faithfulness to, out of gratitude to, flowing from a relationship with God to doing what? To doing a whole bunch of stuff to prove who you are. And honestly, almost anybody can pull that off. And so what Jesus is doing is he's immediately starting with how we live to show what this really looks like in the kingdom of God. It's not this sort of outside righteousness, the things you do or don't do. Now, what you do and what you don't do, that's important. But it's more important that we don't take those things and say, that's what makes me who I am. That's why I'm acceptable to God. That's why God is either happy with me right now or mad at me right now. And it's like changes every day based on the things that I do or don't do. And Jesus is turning that on its head and basically saying, you need to turn away from yourself and reorient everything that you're thinking about what it means to live in God's kingdom and what it means to live a life of faithfulness to the one who is the king. And then he goes on, he goes on to unpack that with sort of a, a, series, of, a series of teaching about things they've heard before, and then he sort of reinterprets them. And I'm just going to kind of summarize them. We can't look at all of them. But what he does is he refocuses faithfulness or obedience away from, hey, look at me, to what it means to love God and to love others. And we can't look at many of them. We'll just look at a couple of them. The first one we'll look at is the command about murder. And then maybe we'll look really briefly at the command about adultery. But I just want to ask you a question right off the bat. Have you ever come to this part of the Sermon on the Mount and thought, wow, it's kind of worse? I mean, anybody or just me? Have you ever come and thought, you know, I've managed not to murder anybody. I mean, I've come close, but I've managed not to murder anybody, but I just hated somebody. I just murdered them. I just felt anger. I just murdered that guy. Wow, this seems, it's, on one level, it seems so much harder, doesn't it? I, I mean, we can say, no, it doesn't, because Jesus says it. But, I mean, <laughs> get down to brass tacks. And your actual experience of these things and what goes through your mind when you're reading it, not just sort of like ideally how you might project the best way to answer the question. Right? It almost sounds like Jesus is saying this. You think Moses was tough? One wrong thought, and I'm going to be all over you before you can say Ten Commandments. <laughs> it kind of sounds like that. Right? Because now it's like my heart. It was hard enough not to like punch somebody. Now I got to not even be angry. So let's look at this first example. Verse 21. 
chapter 5. You've heard it said to your ancestors, do not murder, and whoever murders will be subject to judgment. But I tell you, everyone who is angry with his brother will be subject to judgment, and whoever says to his brother, you fool, will be subject to Sanhedrin. But whoever says, you, you moron, sorry, this is the only translation that uses the word moron, and I, I can't get through it without stopping. <laughs> Whoever says you, will be subject to hellfire. <laughs> so if you, if you are offering your gift on the altar, and there you remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there in front of the altar, First go and be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. So remember what I said earlier. Jesus is preaching the sermon. Matthew is delivering the sermon to people who what? People who have, people who are alive after the resurrection, who are meeting as Christian communities, who have been given a gift, the gift of the Spirit and a new heart. What Jesus is doing here is he's not just saying... No matter what you do, I'm going to be there just looking at you like, see? Jesus is pressing in on the hearts of his people, not just to say, aha, gotcha, but to soften us so that we look inside and be like, yeah, you know what's in my heart? Anger. You know what's in my heart? Like murderous thoughts are in my heart. Not just so we can be like, well, I just messed it up. Now I'm a murderer. Because Jesus isn't saying, you know, anger, it's the same exact thing as murder. He's saying murder, that's where murder arises from, anger. So it's, he's trying to get to the heart of the issue, not just slap you down because something crossed your mind. And I always like to say it this way, Jesus is pressing in to soften us so that we become aware that it's not just the stuff I'm doing on the outside. Those are just sort of things that bust out every now and then that show what? What's happening on the inside. Jesus, Jesus, is, in the, Jesus is in the business of transforming us from the inside out. Not just coming like, you know, Moses had a hammer. I got a sledgehammer. And that's what he's doing. And notice how he's connected. Notice how he's connected hatred here and that is a that's flowing from the heart notice how he connects it to what a relationship to another person so he connects the true worship of god to what having a clear conscience in regard to other people so the short story is this for jesus yet not hating is not the true fulfillment of don't murder the true fulfillment, the way to keep that, the way to live in God's kingdom, not murdering, is not simply don't hate. It's rather, the fulfillment of it is rather to love. Loving another person is how you fulfill the command, do not murder. And you could take all of them the same way. Right? You, could, you could go down the list. But the, the, the fulfillment, that's what Jesus is doing. He's showing the fulfillment of the principle of all these commands is to love God and to love others. That's how it's done. It's not simply stopping yourself from 
physically hurting somebody or stopping yourself internally from just hating somebody and thinking, well, I managed not to hate. What is it? How do you manage not to hate? What is that? Jesus is transforming all to say, no, it's not just not doing these things. It is rather fulfilled in one simple command, and that is loving others, including your enemies. This is, this is transformational. It's not just like amped up sort of, it's not just an amped up morality that just seems even more out of reach than anything else ever was. Same thing with the, other, the next command that Jesus, that Jesus talks about with adultery. Verse 27, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I tell you, everyone who looks at the woman to lust for her has already committed adultery in his heart. So what Jesus is doing is he's, he's pulling the veil back and saying, look, it's not simply that you don't commit adultery. It's the lust that comes out of your heart that's the issue. But he, conne- but he connects it to another person, right? It's not just that you have lust in your heart. It's that you are looking at another person as like an object Upon whom, you know, that you're venting your lust towards. So they don't, they're like less than a person. And you can't love a person and also sort of lust after them. But I don't want to sort of break all those things down. We talked about those things before as Pastor Lau was going through Matthew. I just simply want to point out that what Jesus is getting at here is not simply, you got to stop thinking these things. What he's doing is he's, getting inside a heart, the heart of his own people to shape us and transform us to be the people of God who strive for and long for the kind of righteousness that does what? That loves God and loves others. In the midst of all these sort of conflicting emotions and things that you're feeling, knowing, yeah, you know what? All that's in my heart. And that gets us to the final thing, Because at some point we have to say, well, how do I pull this off? I mean, how do I do it? Well, we're really familiar familiar in the Sermon on the Mount with Jesus saying, you know, ask, seek, knock. You know, or the the text that Pastor Lau read last week from chapter 11, right? Come to me, me, all of you who are weary or heavy laden, I'll give you rest. Take Take my yoke on you and learn from me for my burden is light, my yoke is, e- my yoke is light, my burden is easy. But do you ever, have you ever thought about applying that to what Jesus is talking about here about obedience from the heart? In other words, think of it this way. Matthew 7. Keep asking and it will be given to you. Keep searching and you will find. Keep knocking and the door will be opened. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who searches finds, and the one who knocks, the door will be open. What man among you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a snake? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good, give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? Therefore, whatever you want others to do for you, also do the same for them. For this is the law and the prophets. Here's what Jesus is saying here. You know this new heart that we're longing for? Ask. Don't just turn it into like just a harder version version of the law and think, I've got to get my heart right. 
yeah, you know what? You can't. You can't just decide, I got to get my heart right. Yeah, yeah, you do. But you don't do it by just deciding because the minute you think, I've just got to get my heart right, you're going to approach that thing like it's just sort of some command you've got to do. And you will either think you did it and be like, hey, look at me, I succeeded. Or you'll think, it's hopeless. Because all I got is shame. All I got is guilt. All I got is fear. I can't do it. And what Jesus is coming and saying is, I never asked you to do it. Jesus never asked you to fix your own heart. Jesus never expected you to turn your life around. Jesus comes and says, ask. We think of, this, we think of, we think of uh, teaching like this about asking or knocking, right? We, and, or it'll be open if you ask, you receive. We kind of think of that in terms of like big-time prayer requests, which it applies to that. You get to keep that. But we tend to only think of that in terms of like when I need something or when something's bad and I got to pray. That's all true. But have you ever thought about when you are confronted with what's in your own heart of immediately instead of being like, I got to get my heart right with God. Okay. But have you ever thought about the way to do that is to do what? Follow Jesus' teaching when he says, ask. Why not ask? Why not go before God with that heart that you've recognized because Jesus has softened it and turn to God and be like, yeah, you know what? This is what's in my heart, and you know what's in my heart, and you also have promised to ask to, to give and to, to give and to give me what I've asked for. And this is what you want from me too. So it's not just a determination like I'm gonna fix my identity and be somebody. It is a life of faith and dependence on the one who says, hey, I came to fulfill all this. And the one who actually gives us this righteousness that he wants us to have in this really upside-down, unexpected kingdom where our expectations are turned on their heads and our identity now can be found a hundred and... 10% in the finished work of Jesus who gives us a new heart, who brings us into his kingdom and then doesn't say to us, you better get to work to stay in here. But calls us into a new relationship with God to where faithfulness, obedience is something that flows what? Out of faithfulness to, allegiance to, devotion to God. Not to earn points with him. Not to pay your rent for staying in the kingdom but that flows from a new heart, a refocused life and heart in the kingdom of God. And all this is made possible, of course, by Jesus himself who gave himself for us, the king who put his life down, laid his life down for our sake. And on the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And in the same way, he took wine and with the bread, he said, this is my body, take and eat. And this is the blood, the blood of the new covenant shed for you. Do this in remembrance for me, of me. And so here in a few moments, 
people are going to come forward. There will be servers on both sides and in the middle. Don't fix yourself before you come. Don't sit there thinking, if I, I'll just get, as soon as I get my heart right, I'll come. Come and get your heart right by remembering that Jesus has laid it all down. He laid his life down. He's, he's done it all. Jesus has truly paid it all and invites you with nothing in your hands, not to bring him anything, to simply come. If you're not a believer here today, we would ask that you would not take part in this with us today, but you would come and speak to us about what it means to be in Jesus' kingdom. So there'll be, uh, with the, uh, the cup marked with twine, we'll have wine in it, the other is grape juice, according to your own conscience, there'll be a sort of a, a gluten-free option up front. So when you're ready, come forward and taste the freedom of the kingdom. Let's pray. Father, we're grateful to you that we don't have to come to you with a checklist of the things we've done or not done, but we come to you with open hands believing in your promises, believing in your word, believing that you have provided us everything we need in Jesus. Thank you, Lord, for bringing us into your kingdom. And Lord, every day we pray that you will refocus us so that we don't look for our own kingdoms, our own ideas of what's great, and we don't look for our identity in anything other than the one who died for us, gave his life for us, and rose again so that we could live. In Christ's name, amen. Hey, I'm Lyle Drury and the lead pastor at Sojourn Church, J-Town. Thanks for listening. We are here to reach people with the gospel, build them up as a church, and send them into the world to be a faithful, loving presence. For more sermons, info about our church, or ways you can support our ministry, visit sojournchurch.com slash J-Town.